Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns and for the next few episodes I'm going to be featuring a selection of the key presentations from a Department of Health conference that took place at the end of May in Nottingham on LGBT mental health. The conference drew more than 130 delegates from NHS organisations around the country and was led by Professor Claire Chilvers, who is the chair of Nottingham Healthcare NHS Trust. Mental health services are widely regarded as the Cinderella of healthcare provision, due largely to the enduring stigma that attaches to anything concerned with this area. There is considerable evidence of imbalances in the way services operate now and in the past. Historically, women were often committed to institutions for getting pregnant outside of marriage and labelled with diagnoses such as hysteria or nymphomania for behaviours we nowadays would find perfectly normal. Today, in a similar way, statistics show that black and minority ethnic men are disproportionately liable to be committed to mental hospitals compared with their white counterparts. Homosexuality was declassified as a mental illness a quarter of a century ago, yet transsexual people are still regarded as though the expression of their innate identity is a disorder. Little work has been done to identify the needs that LGBT people have for dealing with the emotional consequences of discrimination and abuse. Similarly, mental health services often fail to consider how they need to respond when LGBT people, like anyone else, have general mental health problems. In this first excerpt, we join the conference for the welcome speech given by Surinder Sharma, the National Director of Equality and Human Rights Group in the Department of Health. After Surinder's five-minute introduction, you'll then hear Claire Chilvers introduce the morning's second speaker, Professor Anne Rogers, who is the Chair of Sociology at the University of Manchester. First then, Surinder Sharma. So it's good to see so many people here from the healthcare sector uh, today. And I hope we can all build alliances and build bridges and talk to each other uh, and network to actually learn from each other about what we're doing. Because far too often we tend to, to look at issues in our own little world and reinvent the wheel rather than talking to other people to see what else has been done. Some LGBT people are at a much higher risk of mental health disorders. For example, self-harm, suicide and depression. This is often linked to their experiences of discrimination. Mixed experiences of LGBT people's access to mental health services, e.g. lack of empathy, homophobia, insensitivity, and in terms of emphasis placed on sexual orientation. Very early on in my job at the department, I actually went to a, a meeting with the Healthcare Commission where they were talking about the experiences of different people in society. And what really hit me was how we tend to let our prejudices in the health service get in the way of how we treat people and the need of in, needs of individuals. And I think what we've got to try and do is set aside our individual prejudices and our individual feelings in really giving the individual in front of us, the service and the support that they need. And that's regardless of their age, their gender, their sexual orientation, um, you know, their religion or belief. It doesn't really matter. The individual in front of us should be what, should be what we care about. 
for many trans people, timely treatment and psychological support are crucial and cannot be clouded by moral judgments. Focus is on the need to help the individual. And I think if you look at all the reforms that are going on in the health service today, the Darcy review and the next stage review that's coming through towards the end of June, early July, but also if you look at the agenda going forward in terms of looking, looking at the individual and putting the individual and the patient and the user of the service at the centre of how we design our services and actually involving them. That's exactly what we, what we should be doing. And that's one of the issues we need to take away from today. LGBT people cannot be overlooked in mental health policy making. We need appropriate service provision in order to best serve the whole of the community, including the LGBT community. Hopefully, with all your input today and working together on these issues, as Claire was saying earlier on, we can make a real difference. And what we're here to do in the health service, and what we're here to do from the Department of Health, is how do we make a clear difference in the way we treat the users of our service, but also the patients that we treat within our service, so that we can improve the health and well-being of the whole population, not just sections of the population, as we have done in the past. So we need a step change in going forward. This is an important issue for myself and for my colleagues in the Equality and Human Rights Group. I'd like to thank Claire for chairing today and taking the time out and showing that commitment. But I'll also like to thank my colleagues, uh, Rebecca Lloyd, who's at the back uh, of the room, and also Barry Mussenden, who've been actually organising this conference, together with, obviously, colleagues you know, from the SOGIAG group who've also participated in the past and supported us very much in taking this agenda forward. So I hope you have a very interesting and informative day today. I'm sorry, I won't be able to stay for the whole day. I'm supposed to be at another meeting in London at lunchtime, so I'll have to leave after this. But I'll pick up on, on some of the issues that was discussed today and see what we need to do in taking the agenda forward at the department. But I'd urge NHS organisations and people involved in healthcare to really take this agenda seriously and take it forward in the, as part of their day-to-day -day work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarinda. We do appreciate you uh, coming today and be sure that there will be some messages which will be coming back to you by the end of the conference. Our next speaker is Professor Anne Rogers. Anne is Professor of the Sociology of Healthcare and Head of the Primary Care Research Group at the University of Manchester. Anne. Thanks a lot. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I was originally given half half-hour slot, I thought that was half an hour presentation, so we suddenly had a panic over there and realised that we're going to sort of speak for 15 minutes and have 15 minutes questions and answers. So I hope um, to get through all my slides and not to be too rushed about it. Right, so the title of my talk is Mental Health and Inequality. And really, um, the way I've sort of viewed this is in um, rather than seeing things as the causes of mental health and inequalities separated out from services, I think there's a strong argument for trying to link up inequalities in service provision and the nature and content of services 
with the causes, if you like, of mental health inequalities, and also to sort of critically scrutinize the type of knowledge we use to understand inequalities and how we respond to those. So there's long-standing evidence of um, inequalities in mental health, and traditionally they focused on um, a few key variables. Um, Farris and Dunham, in their famous first-generation epidemiological study in the States, looked at the relationship between social class and mental health um, in a study of admissions, and they found higher rates of illness in those groups from poor areas. And that's a kind of finding that's been replicated through over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, people adding to that in terms of looking at the role of social isolation, which, and now we've extended that to the issue of social exclusion. And in the contemporary era, for example, it goes through a bit of a fashion here that people are actually very concerned about labour markets and um, looking at the way how the way in which optimal mental health um, is correlated with secure, well-paid work, with workers having control over tasks. But if you look at the evidence, for example, recent ev evidence between 1998 and 2003, here we can see the relative position of those people with mental health problems who are actually only in employment, never mind secure employment. And we see right at the top in terms of the general population that over 70% of people are employed. Those with physical health problems, you know, suffer a bit relatively, but look at mental health line there in red, right down there, 20% um, hovering around that with a slight increase, but very minimal over that period. So the focus on mental health and inequalities at the same time is a very dynamic field. There is quite a lot of research going on about it, and some of it you're going to hear about today. In relative terms, it's sort of been ignored in relation to sort of physical health, the differences in morbidity, um, the poor are currently dying younger, occupational disease, class differences in cancer, lung and heart disease, and ethnic differences in diabetes. There's, all, there's a relatively more research. But actually, recently, the notion of mental health has been brought together, really, in re relation to looking at things like depression and premature death from heart disease. And the relationship between physical and mental health is actually coming together, if you like, in a rather vicious circle, but nonetheless is actually sort of raising the profile, I think, of mental health inequalities. <clears throat> and this can be seen in relation to um, research on depression, where the consequences of depression not only is seen as having an effect on families and relationships, but it's having a real physical impact in relation to rates of heart disease in the population. And then on top of that, we can see the loss of income, the poverty issues, and the huge number of working days lost in the UK through um, sickness, through um, sickness days, through depression and anxiety. Now, the three basic questions that um, I like to see inequality through is really trying to link up the various bodies of knowledge, if you like, that have been um, undertaken in relation to inequalities. First of all, obviously, there's a huge epidemiological um, uh, evidence out there about how socioeconomic inequalities affect mental health status, and it's a very important um, body of knowledge. But on top of that, that's, there's the issue about what's the range and type of knowledge we should use about mental health problems to understand inequalities. And finally, in what way are services and service contacts implicated in generating sustaining inequalities? I'd like to see those in this rather simple triangle diagram that they are actually interactive and with one rather rather than separate. So the background to this different approach is that I see epidemiology is important, but perhaps limited, and that some aspects of psychiatric knowledge, as well as, as, well as being very useful, may be problematic. Um, 
I think the relationship with services has been underplayed, although we've just heard that actually there's more of a focus on services. But we'd like to see that there's a recursive relationship or a feedback loop between external drivers of inequality and service delivery. So obviously epidemiology is important in the emergence of trends, and this is a a graph showing the high risk of developing um, a mental health problem um, is somewhat lower than a decade ago, um, but women are still more at risk than men. And it's also important in seeing when things get slightly better rather than worse. For example, the number of suicides amongst young adults aged 15 to 24 has fallen by almost a half since their peak in 1997. Um, Socioeconomic position remains a strong and consistent relationship throughout. And, for example, in the most recent paper that I've seen in the British Journal of Psychiatry, we see that childhood socioeconomic position impacts and depression on on midlife. So we need to keep hold of that sort of epidemiological um, focus. And other central concepts have been introduced in the meantime, particularly around gender, age, and place and environment, the the kinds of environments that we live in. And this has led to increasingly complex epidemiology. I'm not going to go through that. But I want to return to um, the the second bit of the triangle. First of all, we've got sort of looking at the, 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 the issues that actually might cause mental health problems. But what about the knowledge about inequalities? Traditionally, epidemiologists collect evidence about um, inequalities which map illness and health in large populations through the use of objective variables like employment status, housing, living arrangements, and diagnosis. But is there still a problem with just using psychiatric knowledge? We know that many of the key concepts in psychiatry have been contested conceptually. People have looked at the validity of notions such as schizophrenia and depression and come up with different models to that of the medical model. But there are other issues, like are they sufficiently focused on issues of social influence and culture? And do they ignore service and other types of knowledge? And some have adopted the biopsychosocial model as a response to this, which is trying to look at psychological and social factors alongside biological factors in understanding a person's medical illness or disorder. But some people, like Shulamit Ramon, for example, suggest that perhaps even with these models, the bio predominates predominates over the psycho and the social. And here's a a little comment from her saying that actually, although the framework does look at issues such as poverty, stigma and discrimination, that there's a bias in there because the the concept of poverty is not focused upon in the writings of epidemiologists and mental health. It's not focused on in enough depth. And therefore, other types of knowledge may be quite important. Um, Stigma, for example, is a social concept that comes from sociology and has been um, the subject increasingly of looking at social exclusion and discrimination, and I think it's about giving those other concepts perhaps more of a say. There's also the other issue about how do we use the knowledge from lay people themselves, from users and lay people, because they have a different perspective, and they bring with them a set of variables about cause and response which may be different. Users and other patient groups um, and lay people generally have extensive knowledge of their own lives and the conditions in which they live, and those are the things they bring with them to services. They can turn themselves into experts in order to challenge medical hegemony, and I think we've seen that very much in relation to the mental health users movement in terms of challenging some of the orthodoxies of, of mental health services and trying to bring a different perspective. And so you can see actually in action the way in which lay knowledge is quite different from professional knowledge and may bring different answers to the way in which people respond to the problems. 
This is a study from the recent study from the British Journal of General Practice by Johnson et al., in which um, the researchers looked at the way in which um, looked at the way in which patients and GPs um, viewed their depression and how to manage it. And they've noted that general practitioners tend to encourage patients to view depression as something separate from themselves and different from normal sadness, i.e. it's probably a sort of a type of illness. Well, patients, they found, questioned those boundaries and rejected the notion of a medical cure and emphasized self-management instead. Um, so the focus of, of patients consulting was about managing um, managing in a way um, in order to get out of the depression which focused on getting by from day to day, a very here and now kind of perspective. Um, And this tended to clash with GAGP priorities. Um, So the issue then is about how you get to sort of new consensus about how to manage mental health. But the the point is, by introducing the notion of lay knowledge alongside professional knowledge, you perhaps come up with different solutions to a particular problem, or you're at least aware of them. And the same is really true of looking at the relative nature of knowledge, not seeing it as something objective and fixed. And this is very pertinent to the area which is the focus of the conference today in terms of the way in which, in the past, sexuality has been problematized by medical contact. And the responses to people actually consulting at different eras. For example, in the 19th century, there was a very biologically deterministic view about homosexuality and that fatalism was seen as a treatment because it was seen as biologically determined. Then when you've got changes in treatment philosophies within psychiatry, such as psychoanalytical behavior therapeutic measures, psychiatrists started to interfere a bit more and aspired to cure homosexuality. And therefore, deviation from gender roles was assumed to be abnormal. And in the contemporary era, we've got a reversal of that. But it's just very important, I think, to see not knowledge as something that's fixed, but is held by different groups and different interest groups and that that, that there are differences between professional lay knowledge and and that these should be seen um, as as changeable and influenceable. The third aspect of the triangle is whether service contacts affects the risk of inequality. Um, And we see this as a role in causing inequalities rather than separated out from them. And when people have contact with services, as well as getting help, there's also a risk of stigma and social exclusion. Maybe the stigma is associated perhaps more from professional stigma than from social stigma that you get outside in the community. And also we know there's iatrogenic effects from actually contacting services. That's unintended consequences. People may lose their homes or they they, they may get side effects from the treatments they're on. It's not all, all a good picture. And the other thing is that We talk about, in relation to general service, the notion of inverse care law. That is, um, a a GP, um, a socialist GP called Tudor Hart, noticed there was an inverse relationship between need and access to services and thought this was a bad thing. Indeed, it, it may be in relation to physical illness, but in relation to mental health, it could be a dubious proposition as well, because we know that access does not always meet need in the same way as it does in relation to physical illness. And in particular, we have to take account of the gradient of coercion. So at one end of this spectrum, we've got voluntary sector services that people um, volunteer to use. And at the other one, you've got more coercive um, control that goes on through special hospitals. It's it's just a comment that one has to be um, aware that sometimes we get um, people using um, special hospitals or compulsory detention. That isn't the same as accessing um, general practice or, or having a voluntary relationship with people. So I think we have to bring that in to our study of um, inequalities. 
There's also this issue about, recently, um, looking at the notion of prestige of particular conditions, um, and that actually the prestige that is given by um, health professionals to particular conditions actually prioritise what they want to have a look at. So a recent study um, undertaken in the States found that mental health has low prestige in general settings. And here it was demonstrated that active, specialised biomedical and high-tech types of medicine um, are the things that actually are given higher levels of prestige. And in the UK, we've obviously got primary care as a point of equality. So, and as some of you might know, that there's a a framework called the Quality and Outcomes Framework, which is an attempt to measure um, quality of services and for which GPs receive a financial incentive for. So I'm grateful to Helen Lester, who I work with, um, for this slide, um, because this looks at the percentage of QOF points, quality and outcome uh, framework points, scored for each disease area by practice in England in 2006 and 7. And there you see at one end of, this, of the list we've got depression, um, and, and, and at the other we've got obesity. So we can see that there are differences in the way in which um, general practitioners have responded to getting QOF points for different conditions. So... That's maybe one of the reasons. Uh, But um, in terms of conclusion, the main points that I want to actually make is that bodies of knowledge exist about the causal role of social inequalities in um, predicting mental health status. Um, There's also the impact of service contact and the role of clinical knowledge. We still do need to develop what I call a transdisciplinary approach to the relationship between these both bodies of knowledge, but I do think it's important that we start to consider the sources of inequality and see them as interacting rather than separated out. Thank you. That's it for time.